You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Larry Lieber, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Ant-Man slash Giant-Man Episode 1, The Man in the Ant Hill. This is covering a period of Ant-Man, the beginning of Ant-Man, from 1962 to 1964. And I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am Eric Findlay, your Ant-Man co-host. Ant-Man slash Giant-Man co-host. Right. <laughs> That's very important because, uh, because he changes his name halfway through this book. Yeah. Now, for those of you who are joining us because you have a mild curiosity about Ant-Man because of the movies that have come out, this is going to be nothing like the movies. Nothing. In fact, the Ant-Man in the movie is not even the Ant-Man in this book. No, it's not. Um, in fact, the old man from the, from the first movie is the guy we're talking about here. Right. They even call him something different here. They call him Henry Pym, not Hank Pym like they do in the movies. So... Uh, yeah, there is um, a bunch of stuff that I need to get out of the way before we start. I want to just give a shout out to our Patreon site, patreon.com slash thunderquack. If you become a supporter, then you can get access to a ton of cool interviews and review episodes and all around kind of cool geek related stuff. You can find us on Facebook, um, just search for Epic Marvel Podcast, and you can do the same on Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to send me an email about any of these episodes or ones we have coming up or you just want to chat, you can send it to epicmarvelpodcast at gmail.com. I had the incredible opportunity to talk to Larry Lieber, who is Stanley's brother. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. And we touched on a few things about Ant-Man, and so I'll play a few of those clips, maybe actually just two, I think, clips throughout this episode here. And then in the coming weeks sometime, I will release the full episode. It's over an hour long. It's really, really great. Wow. So that'll be really cool. Then, let's see. What else? I don't think I have anything else to say. So why don't we start with the episode? Eric, can you tell me what we are covering in this episode? This volume covers Tales to Astonish, number 27, The Origin of Ant-Man, first appearance, as well as... Issues 35 through 59, where he becomes sort of a main character of the title. Now, what are the things that we need to know before jumping into this book? This is still sort of before the age of superheroes. And so the comic magazines at this time aren't really very genre-oriented. Or sorry, they are they're specifically, they're specifically genre-oriented. Genre yeah. And they're mostly like one-off stories. Uh, we don't really have many ongoing, uh, multi-part kind of storylines. And so they follow specific genres. So Tales of Suspense follows sort of more suspense-driven things. We have Journeys into Mystery. We have Strange Tales, Tales to Astonish. Were there any horror-focused ones at this time? Uh, Journey into Mystery and... You know, they all yeah. were sort of horror monster yeah. books. Uh, and so there was, there was a mix. Yeah. There were the monster books and there were the alien stories. Right. 
And there were kind of the robot stories. Yeah, kind of like the the old radio programs from the 20s through the 40s. Uh, there's a lot of overlap between horror and suspense and mystery. Yeah, yeah, a lot of these old stories, and they're just short. They're like eight page. Uh, and each issue would have three stories in it and that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, they would all kind of deal with the human psyche or, you know, they, it would get the person into a situation and then they would act in a way that they thought was the best, but it turned out to be completely the wrong way to act. And right. it would destroy their life or trap them in an alternate dimension or um, aliens would come down to, to Earth and try to take over Earth. But then the one kid manages to you know make a scary face at them they're like oh no humans are scary so they we can't invade this place and they all go away or you know something like that or something kind of like signs where it's like oh aliens are going to take over but it turns out they're allergic to water yeah 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 (laughs) or or the the classic monster stories and that's where Groot comes from he's one of those monsters from the golden age of marvel um there are a few uh fin fang foom he's another one and uh and that was what made up all of Marvel's titles at the time. And they weren't even called Marvel before this was this was uh, Atlas and Timely Comics. And and even now we have the agents of Atlas, who are a lot of the characters who sort of spun out from the Atlas title. And yep. and their main person is Marvel Boy, the um, Uranian. Oh, yeah. He's yeah, an yeah. alien from Uranus. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we have also, what is it, like the Monsters of, of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Right, yep, now we have the Monsters of S.H.I.E.L.D., the new Howling Commandos. Yeah, and that those all spin out of these old stories yep. as well. So they're kind of bringing a lot of that stuff back now in the present. Tales to Astonish is somewhere in between these genres. It's kind of like a little bit of sci-fi, a little bit of horror, a little bit of suspense. Kind of like a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, well, Twilight Zone is a great way to to compare it. It's a great analogy because that's exactly the kind of writing it is. And you can even hear Rod Sterling narrating these books. Like if you if you know Twi- uh, Twilight Zone, you can hear his voice. You know, you're entering another dimension. Kind of <laughs> that that kind of narration in the way that Stan writes these books or whoever's scripting them write these, writes these books. Right, definitely an influence here. One other thing to note is that. In fitting with the style and the genre, Henry Pym is a borderline mad scientist. (laughs) Yeah. But he also knows judo. Right. (laughs) He knows a lot of things. Yes. And that's one of the things about reading comics in the 60s is that they don't try to go out of their way to make sense a whole lot of the time. No. Um, They, you know, these were written for for kids to just kind of read and, and throw away and they'll pick up an issue here or there but no one was really collecting there were very few people that were collecting issue by issue going on at this right. point and and definitely it's for kids who wouldn't necessarily know or care about you know the science behind things or whatever now a lot of the comic book readership is an older audience young adults and older adults and middle-aged people who would be you know maybe the ones reading this when they were kids and They've gone through school, they've gone through university, and they have a lot more knowledge of what makes sense and what doesn't. So, yeah, we can we can expand on that when we get into issue 27, mm-hmm. because that's kind of where this all starts. Right. So I think the other thing to know that's important to know going into this is that Fantastic Four number one came out a few months before this. Yeah. Because this is... Um, Tales to Astonish number 27 is out... Um, January 1962, yeah. 
and Fantastic Four is, is cover dated November 1961. November, yeah. So the superhero genre is brand new. And, and you'll even see that this first issue, number 27, isn't a superhero issue at all. It's just oh, a, not. a standard horror story. And it wasn't until a, f- a few months later, when was it? September of that same year, so um, like nine months later, that they brought him back and turned him into a superhero because of the success of the right. Fantastic Four right. and also because of the success um, or the mild success of, of um, Incredible Hulk, which had come out before that as well. Uh, Who also f- isn't really a hero. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. A little, a little more. Well, and, and that's the thing. Fantastic Four... If you read that first issue, and we'll do this when we do our first uh, Fantastic Four volume or yeah. episode, that story is full of giant monsters. It's yeah. a giant monster story with explorers going outer space. Like it's exactly the same as anything that was kind of going on at the time. They, Stan just happened to title the whole comic Fantastic Four. Right, and the first issue. I, I mean, again, we're going to get to that when we do that episode. But the end of the first issue, they sort of. Um, instead of just sort of leaving it like a lot of these one-off stories, they go, we should be using our powers to help mankind and sort of starts the superhero genre right there. Right. And so I don't know whose idea, I should have asked Larry, uh, whose idea it was to bring back Ant-Man for a second go because out of all of these one-off characters, why did they choose that guy? But um, Maybe if I talk to him again or if I ever see Stan Lee on the street, I'll, <laughs> I'll ask him, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that I wanted to mention that uh, when Ant-Man or when Tales to Astonish number 35 came out, one month before that was Amazing Fantasy number 15 and Journey into Mystery Ooh. number 83. And one month after that is Strange Tales 101, Human Torch's first issue. Okay. So those all launched pretty much at the same time. They was just a bang of superhero like all over the place for marvel they're really trying to cash in on that yeah they really were and they were met with some success and wasn't that right around the time when sort of um timely was starting to kind of fail wasn't the sort of the story behind spider-man that or fantastic four that stanley was just sort of allowed to do whatever he wanted because the whole place was gonna shut down anyway yeah that's the story behind amazing fantasy 15 that title was going to be canceled so the editor said, uh, Stan, you can do whatever you want. So he did that crazy Spider-Man story. Uh, it turned out to be super popular. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, there's one thing, more thing that I wanted to mention. And we'll talk about this more as we get to the individual issues. But the relationship between Henry and Janet right from the beginning is fairly obviously toxic. And it's <laughs> it's, it's not a good relationship. And people always sort of uh, refer to the one incident you know later on but just even from the start you can see this isn't healthy um janet's always flirting with him she says you know that uh she loves him and she often refers to him as a boyfriend even though that's not what they are um but then all of a sudden the next one sudden issue they are, they are i know right and they never really sort of and but then he doesn't really act like it sometimes and sometimes he does yeah um and she's not subtle about this and then henry when he first meets her is definitely attracted to her because she looks like his late wife but she's really young and doesn't want to get in a relationship with her but even knowing this knowing that he might have some feelings for her knowing she definitely has feelings for him he still makes her his sidekick 
which is not a good idea. <laughs> and at the at, at the beginning, they seem like they're living in separate places. But right. But then later on, it's like ambiguous. Are they living together? Like I don't at, I at don't the, actually know. At the very least, they spend a lot of time together in their like lab slash gym place or whatever. And they go on vacations together right. and stuff. So yep. it's it's just it's really messy. It, yeah. They they never had the define the relationship talk. Yeah. And so so Henry from his side is also not very good with relationships because he spends a lot of his time acting like a jerk to her and trying to distance himself for her trying to make her not like him and maybe trying to maybe put up a barrier for himself and often that kind of has the opposite effect on her and i don't even know if he does that on purpose no it's just kind of the way he is it seems and then there's the one issue where she uh, goes on a date with another guy and he gets super jealous right (laughs) (laughs) kind of out of the blue it was uh, kind of weird yeah the whole thing's just a mess but that's kind of the way stan wrote back then uh that was the way that he wrote women yeah uh, and it doesn't matter which which uh, woman of the 60s you see, Sue Storm yeah. or uh, Jane Foster, like they're all written pretty much kind of the same. The The only line of dialogue they get is something relating to how gorgeous the men are in the room. And, and, <laughs> and you know, they're, that that's it. They're very of the time. Mm-hmm. Things have definitely progressed since right. then. And even they progress between this period and the the late 60s. Right. Especially with, you know, Sue um, getting a more prominent role in the Fantastic Four and being an active member there. And Wasp starts to really come into her own on the Avengers. Yeah, but then just anybody who comes into this issue needs to recognize that... This that, is the 1960s. Right, early 1960s. And, and while it's not really a great excuse, this is present in this, in this volume. Definitely. Yeah. Yep, there's a lot of sexism. There's a lot of talking down to women and stereotyping their roles in, in the world and, and their personalities and that kind of thing. And uh, yep, we just have to recognize the time that it is and um, look at how far we've come. Mm-hmm. Before we get into the episode, I have a Twitter poll that I put up, and I'm going to read it here. The question I asked is, in Ant-Man's Tales to Astonish Adventures, which villain is the absolute worst? Yeah. And my options are Egghead, The Living Eraser, The Porcupine, or the human top? Who would be your, your answer there? I would put on Trago. Trago. <laughs> well, I try to have the more actual right. kind of superhero <clears throat> characters because there are so many just one-off dictators or monsters right. or whatever. I wanted the actual super villains. I actually like a lot of those ones. So I, I think I'd have to say the eraser, the living eraser. Okay. I would say that too. <laughs> That's going to be my top pick also um, because the other ones do... They're all really cheesy in a 1960s way, but that one has the the least amount of merit. Yeah, it makes the least amount of sense. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to teleport you to another dimension through various swipes. So like Part I do one appears... do one swipe and like, "Oh, your stomach is over there, but not your head yet." <laughs> yeah. So the results here are, let's see here. A two-way tie for bottom and egghead and the porcupine. That means people didn't think that they were the worst. And then 23% for the human top, so pretty much a three-way tie there. And coming in in first place, which means they are the worst, absolute worst, living eraser, just like we said, with 33%. 
I asked for some comments on Facebook, and we got one really, really long comment from <laughs> JC. I'm not going to read all of it because it's really long, but I'll pick out a few highlights. Thanks, JC. Yes, thank you very much. I was very excited for this Ant-Man, Giant-Man epic collection. Growing up on Marvel in the 70s and 80s, the Silver Age adventures of Marvel heroes were well chronicled in flashbacks or reprints. And then in the 90s, uh, Marvel Masterworks hardcovers supplied me with all Mm -hmm. those Silver Age stories a Marvel zombie could want, except for Ant-Man. So this epic collection volume was very welcomed by me. He says, I love how the character evolved out of the standard Silver Age fantasy horror short stories. Um, In Tales to Astonish 27, we meet Henry Pym. And I grin thinking about how Pym got his start as the classic scientist who will be mocked by his peers who will show them all. Uh, let me see. I'm going to move ahead a little bit here. In Tales to Astonish 44, the Wasp is added as sidekick. And despite being played as a flighty female, as was the practice of the time, she is a wonderful addition. I agree with that completely. Oh, definitely. Uh, the Don Heck art gets a little dicey during these next few issues. Skipping ahead a little bit more. Issue 49 is when we finally meet Giant Man. It's, a pretty, co- it's pretty cool to consider that Ant-Man had only been around a couple of years before they completely changed the character. Kind of. He also still has a lot of his old ant powers and still uses them as well. Henry Pym is basically two superheroes at the same time. I don't know why Lee didn't just come up with a new name for him, which would encompass his size-changing and insect powers. Now, I want to make a comment there. I think that calling him Giant Man is brilliant because it's still Ant-Man. He just added G.I. on the front to make Giant Man. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely brilliant. So it should be like G.I. slash A-N-T. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> or, or like bracket G.I. bracket. Yeah, it gets kind of confusing because sometimes he refers to himself as Giant Man even when he's small, and then other times when he shrinks, he he refers to himself as Ant-Man. Yeah, and I wasn't too sure if the general public thought that he was two different heroes. Yeah, I mean, he sort of appears and disappears, and so you might be able to draw the conclusion that he's shrinking down to ant size, but I wonder if people just sort of go, oh, whatever happened to Ant-Man? The most interesting facet of this phase of the title is the Wasp backup stories, which aren't really Wasp stories. They're random sci-fi fantasy pieces plotted by Stanley and scripted and drawn by his brother Larry Lieber. We usually find Wasp in a VA hospital or orphanage telling these short stories. And the short stories are fine, but having them framed with the Wasp telling them to different audiences each month is strange. But that kind of weirdness is why I love Silver Age Marvel. I think it's kind of a way for them to include those one-off three-page short stories that people might be used to while still keeping the focus of the book on Giant Man and Wasp. Now, what's not collected in this volume is that um, these these Ant-Man stories are only about 13 pages at the beginning. And so there are other, there are two other short stories per issue that are not collected in this in this one that have nothing to do with Ant-Man that are not framed mm. by Wasp they're just the standard anthology stories and uh, and sometimes we'd get a an issue or a story that stretched to 18 pages and there'd be only one issue or one short story at the end of that one um, but yeah once the they started um, framing Wasp I believe that those stories are actually old stories that they've redrawn and stuck in here with the Wasp framing sequence. And they did a similar thing when, when Human Torch got his own title in Strange Tales. Uh, the Watcher had was doing backup stories where he'd do the same thing. It was the Watcher saying, I'm observing this 
alien race coming to Earth, and then he'd tell the 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 story in the typical old style Marvel Marvel fashion, and then it would return back to the Watcher at the very end, and then those quickly disappeared once the book was a fifty fifty split with another hero. Mm-hmm. JC continues, this epic collection ended up being one of my favorites, though it's hard to say why. The stories and art weren't great, and there is probably a reason that of all the 1960 Marvel superheroes to have their own titles, Ant-Man really was really the only failure. I would also say that Hulk was a failure. It got canceled after six issues, although it did come back a few years later. Maybe it's because I like the underdog, or maybe it's because I knew so little about these tales to astonish stories, or maybe the quality of being so bad they're good. In any case, I was satisfied to finally unlock this hidden piece of Silver Age Marvel. I, I, I would agree. Like, I, I don't know if it's my favorite epic collection, but it was really good. I enjoyed it a lot. And part of that is because I'm also a fan of the underdog. Some of my favorite characters from growing up are like Darkhawk and Cloak and Dagger. And <laughs> oh, yeah, right. And I think what it is about the collection is that I like the simplicity of the one-issue stories. Uh, when you get into a into the later volumes of things, you know, you kind of have to read the entire volume to get the entire story, and then to sort of decide what you like or not. Or you have to read the volume before, right? Or the volume after, right? Exactly. Um, this is really easy to pick up and read. You don't have to read the whole thing all at once. You can sort of pick it up and put it down as you need to, and you're not going to forget really what was happening before. Oh, where did I leave off? And it's just fun. I, I'm not a fan of of Dick Ayer's thick, heavy inking, which is uh, present at the beginning in the first few issues, and then later on, he comes back. Okay, I was going to say the opposite, actually. <laughs> I liked his inking, and there's a... We'll get into that. I have some very specific um, examples of um, the times that I do like his inking over someone like Don Heck, who's very scratchy in his style, or Steve Ditko, who's way too simplistic, I think, for the style. Yeah, I, I'd agree with Steve Ditko, but Dick Ayer's heavy lines just sort of make everything feel really dark and less like there's motion involved in this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, let's go through this and and point that out when you see it. Sure. Wow, so that's uh, a lot of preamble to (laughs) these issues, which I think is a first issue, so we're allowed to do that, kind of setting the stage and getting to know Ant-Man a little bit better. Uh, but why don't we take a trip back to 1962 and start with Tales to Astonish number 27. Okay. So, issue number 27. Henry Pym develops a shrinking formula after being shunned by the scientific community. That is my one-sentence ex- explanation of this issue right here. That's a good one. Yeah. And it is, like we talked about before, it is just like a, an eight-page short story that has a very cool kind of horror theme. He gets trapped by ants um and in this one he just shrinks he doesn't communicate with the ants or anything like that he just shrinks and and has to and discovers the world of ants and you can imagine how small ants are uh he's got to be pretty pretty tiny to be you know be able to ride on top of one of those ants yeah and like i said before this is very similar to something out of the twilight zone oh, I'll show you, it's going to be such a great thing for the world if we can shrink things down, shrinks himself and goes, oh, this is not what I expected. Um, you know, all of a sudden I'm uh, at the mercy of all of these ants. Mm-hmm. Will I ever get big again? Right. Yeah, exactly. The, the the fear of not being able to 
ever return back to normal size is what he's what they're playing at here. Uh, it's interesting to note that it is a serum that he pours on his arm in order to shrink. It's not a gas. It's not a pill. It's not particles. It's not mental abilities or whatever. Yeah. The, the way he turns into Ant-Man changes several times throughout this book and, and even further on. But in this one and in the subsequent few issues, it's just a, um, some sort of liquid chemical that he pours on himself and it shrinks himself and, not, and his clothes but nothing else in the proximity. I wonder what would happen if he would drip some on the floor. Right. <laughs> At this time, kind of like you said in the intro, they don't really care how scientifically accurate it is and you know a lot of uh, at that time a lot of things about science wouldn't have been known like they are now yeah but um just the fact that he can pour a little bit on his arm and it shrinks his whole body is kind of odd <laughs> yeah. the gas makes a lot more sense in certain ways yeah but... you inhale and it goes through your system or whatever right or at least you know it's it's encompassing your body but then yeah if you were to pour a little bit is that just going to shrink the one floorboard is it going to shrink my the hand entire is house? tiny yeah <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that there's too much to say here. It's, um, I mean, there's only eight pages, so um, it's Jack Kirby. We can mention that, Jack Kirby doing the art. And actually, you know, I do have something to say. I have a clip of Larry Lieber talking about um, his involvement in the creation of Ant-Man. My brother, Stanley, of course, made up the characters, the, the, the superheroes. But he happened to like my names for the civilians. I made up the civilian names, all right? Okay. So... I had to make up a name. It originally started with the Ant-Man you mentioned. And I figured the uh, the Ant-Man was supposed to be a scientist. So I figured, what's the name of a scientist? And I used to look at the back of the uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a collegiate dictionary. They have two sections, one biographical names and one geographical names. And when I started writing, I'd look there and uh, to get an idea. And somewhere I came across the name, I don't know if it was both names, but Henry Pym. And I said, I like Henry Pym. That's a good name for a scientist, you know? Nice. Henry Pym, it sounded. So that's the name I gave him. I was thrown when I went to see the movie, and they're calling him Hank. <laughs> to me, Hank, Hank is the name you call a guy who works in a garage. Hey, Hank, have you finished uh, <laughs> right. uh, putting on the tires yet? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The Hank is a Hank is a derivative of Henry, kind of, and and sometimes they call the Beast um, Hank McCoy instead of Henry McCoy. When oh he's, yeah, when he's a doctor, then he's Henry McCoy, but when he's pals, then it's Hank. They do that all the time. Tony Stark, oh, is yeah. Anthony Stark, yeah. And, um, I don't know, Johnny Storm, Jonathan, Jonathan, Storm. yeah, he is, or Sue for Susan, yeah, right. But but that one in particular, um, there does seem to be a. A difference in sort of the prestige of the name like some of those other ones johnny and tony they they go by those names all the time but um when it comes to the henry's it's sort of the henry when we need to be important and hank the other times right yeah and so then to have henry pym become more permanently hank pym um they almost never call him henry anymore it's true then um yeah may, I, I can see where he might be a little um, annoyed at that <laughs> yeah because he put some thought and attention into right. choosing the name right this is definitely a scientist name yeah <laughs> tales to astonish number 35 the return of ant-man ant-man realizes that he should not have destroyed his serum uh, creates a helmet to communicate with ants 
and foils a robbery. It's not just any robbery. It's <laughs> communists. Communism. It's communists Communism. that are stealing an anti-radiation gas. <laughs> uh, that's just not your run-of-the-mill robbery. Oh, no. Communism plays a huge role in this book and all of the 1960s books. Right. The communism, uh, Soviets, yeah. Red Chinese, right. they are the villains all the time throughout these books. And you'll see communism pop up again and again in, in this one collection itself as well. Yeah. And this was the time right. that we were living in yeah. in the 1960s. Yeah. I mean, it's it's similar to how if you were to watch all of the seasons of 24, you go through, oh, you know, the Middle Eastern Arab people, they're the enemies. Oh, but then the Chinese are the enemies. And then the Russians are the enemies. It sort of follows whatever is the, quote, enemy in the media at the time. Right. Yeah. Well, and this was the Cold War era. Oh, definitely. So. In this issue, when he's making his helmet, well, first of all, they kind of retcon the end of issue 27. He pours his serum down the drain. And then sort of immediately after that, he goes, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to recreate it just for knowledge's sake. But I'm going <laughs> to lock it away in my safe and never use it again. But then when he goes to make his helmet... He talks about how uh, learning how ants communicate. And ants actually communicate by smell using pheromones um, and sort of sensors in their antennae. But they didn't know that at not, this time? I, I guess not. No, not really. Or I mean, at least Stan didn't know this well, at this Stan time. Stan didn't know this, yeah. <laughs> but they should have known that ants don't have ears. And it does mention something about the ants using their ears, re sounds reaching their ears. Huh. Although it turns out that only fairly recently there was a species or um, uh, a couple of species of ants that they found that actually do have these little ridges on their back and they scrape them with their um with their leg to generate a sound like a cricket kind of like a cricket and they do that to indicate danger okay and and they don't hear the sound but they can feel the vibrations that the sound that the, that the sound makes on the ground oh through their legs okay. yeah so if he was going to go with the with the communicating by sound method, then that would be the way to go, although they wouldn't have known that at the time. I just think it's kind of funny that they'd go with, like, electromagnetic radiation, <laughs> radio wave something. In this one, we find out that not only can he communicate with ants, but when he is shrunk, he actually retains the strength that he had when he's full size. Like, we know that ants can lift a tremendous amount of weight compared to their body size. Yeah. 50 times approximately. But with Ant-Man, we're talking like 500 times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Because he says it's the, the, the... And the thing is that he says that he retains his full strength as a human, which is probably, I don't know, 100 pounds. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if he's average. Um, I mean, who knows if he has super strength or not, or like, like, like Batman level strength. But um, to have that much strength when you're the size smaller than an ant like he could punch a, the beetle that he's running away from and it would probably explode <laughs> yeah right exactly <laughs> <laughs> um or like i don't know if you can imagine poking a pin through a piece of paper yeah that's like the size of his fist right so if he's gonna punch a bad guy in the face like his fist would punch a tiny little hole right through his cheek. It right. wouldn't actually have the force to push him over uh, <laughs> or knock him across the room or something like that. Yeah, so they definitely play loose with the physics here. Yeah, yeah. We also get a mention of unstable molecules. 
And right. I, there was a, probably, I think, three or four issues of the Fantastic Four by this point, and I don't know if they talk about Unstable Molecules there. So Unstable Molecules first appeared in Fantastic Four number six, which is September 1962. Okay, so that's the same issue, that's the same month as this issue here. Right, but probably like a week before or something. Maybe. Yeah, because um, Unstable Molecules are always credited to Reed Richards. Right. The idea behind them is that they are molecules whose bonds are not necessarily weaker, as in easier to pull apart, but they are less rigid so that they can flex and stretch and bend without breaking. It also, because of that, it offers a higher resiliency to being torn or um, punctured. Or set on fire. Or set on fire or that kind of stuff, yeah. Well, that would have to be pretty drastic because sometimes Ant-Man goes from ant size to 30 feet tall. Right. And his costume stretches with him. So right. that's some pretty good molecules there. Right. Now, he also says that like a lot of his other clothes are also made of unstable molecules. Right. And that probably is needed when he's using like the pills later on. When he has the gas, I, you could make the argument that the gas is going to shrink his clothes as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. As was the practice in these early 60s issues, um, this chapter, this this story is only 13 pages, but it's broken up into three chapters. Um, each chapter has a very specific purpose, uh, and then they lose that sort of writing, that style of writing, pretty quick. Um, and the 13 pages just becomes kind of one larger story that doesn't need to be broken up. Yeah, it's hard to break down such a short story into multiple parts. Yeah. Okay, the next issue is number 36, The Challenge of Comrade X. I sense communism in this one. <laughs> Comrade X. Let's see. Comrade X is sent to capture Ant-Man and steal his shrinking gas for for Russia. For Russia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a basic plot in this one. You'll see that um, a, a scientist spy wants to steal something scientific for a communist country. That happens multiple times. We can count them. This is... This is the second, second time, time. Yep. already out of three issues <laughs> that we've talked about where that's happening. They they state that they want to steal the formula and make an antidote, which is kind of odd because then you would be like counteracting Ant-Man's size changing. What they really want to do is they just want to recreate it. I get, yeah, right. <laughs> they, they, they want to steal it and then use it first. Right. That's yeah. what they should be doing. And what they describe is exactly that, you know, making our army so small and then invading a non-communist country to tra take it over. In this one, we get introduced to his catapult that launches him across the city. And he, this is so funny. Oh, so ridiculous. He uses his his um, helmet to gather a whole bunch of ants to create a nice soft cushion for him <laughs> when he lands. Yep. <laughs> I don't know if anybody ever questioned that he's always putting all of these ants in harm's way just to, like, get injured to save him from falling or to, like, go and get stomped on by somebody as a distraction or something. Well, they explain this as he's not actually controlling them. He's asking for help, and he they view him as a friend, so they're right. willing to help. So <laughs> it, it's of their own accord. He's not coercing <laughs> any any ant into doing something they don't want well, to do. there are times where, when that explanation is a little questionable. Definitely. <laughs> what I want to know is, he's also starting to use the gas here. here um, in the last issue, it was still a serum. And when he's small, he actually has to like bathe in a small dish of it. 
Um, <laughs> but in this one, it's become a gas that he releases from a little capsule on his belt. And he does this in the presence of his ants, yet the ants never grow. Maybe the ants don't want to grow. Maybe they <laughs> like being super tiny, unlike that beetle we'll meet in a few issues. Right. When I was about to read this book, I thought to myself, there are definitely going to be some cliche tropes that we're going to see oh, here. Yeah. One of them is, like, I, I assumed that Deet, Flypaper, oh, yeah. and Anteaters right. were going to be in this book. And oh, sure yeah. enough, all three of them <laughs> do. Uh, Deet is in this one here. He gets sprayed by DDT. Which is an insecticide. And it yes, was insecticide. Very common in um, spraying crops, but is now banned. Yes, it's very, very bad stuff. Yeah. It's, it's what led to bald eagles being on the brink of extinction was oh, yeah. largely due to DDT. The other trope that we will visit a few times in this one is the what I call the Scooby-Doo ending, even though <laughs> Scooby-Doo hadn't come out by this point because right. that's 1969. But it, that's the one where the, the person we meet at the beginning who's asking for help... The one new person. Yeah, the, ends up being unmasked at the end as being the villain. So that happens in this issue as and well. And it usually ends up with a... Uh, Curses, I've been foiled if it wasn't for you. It wasn't for you meddling children. <laughs> when the lights go out in this issue, there's reference to Ant-Man feeling like Samson pulling down the pillars of the temple. So when Samson in the Bible was captured by the Philistines, they gouged out his eye eyes so that he was blind. And then one time they call him to the temple um, to be a form of amusement as he stumbles around. And he pushed down the pillars to the temple, causing it to collapse, killing everybody inside. Nice story. Sounds yeah. like a superhero. Yeah. So uh, that's why he makes reference to that as he's trying to topple Comrade X. Now, my, my one question here is, and, you know, again, this goes back to it doesn't all have to make sense. <laughs> yeah. If Ant-Man knew that um, the woman was Comrade X since being in her handbag, why did he walk into the trap on the ship? Why, uh, why, why didn't he, like, take some other way to get onto the ship where he probably wouldn't be captured? Well, I don't know. Maybe he they just did, he didn't know that that was going to be the trap, or that there was that they yeah, were onto him. Maybe they didn't know that he thought that he was being sneaky. Yeah, maybe. But I don't. I don't know. <laughs> One of those things where I'm not uh, holding my breath waiting for a, nope. <laughs> a good answer for that one. Issue thirty-seven, trapped by the protector. In this issue, we have Ant-Man coming to defeat someone known as the Protector, who is basically running a protection racket, um, extorting people for money so that he doesn't break their stuff. It's protection from himself. The Protector is oversized and strong and has a disintegrating ray. Dun-dun-dum. The first page of part two... This is um, this is a fantastic example of how great Jack Kirby is. So the first page of part two, a good quarter of the page is taken up by the title at the very top. And then the rest of it, the, the bottom half is broken into eight panels, four tiers of uh, or two tiers of four panels each. And in these panels, Kirby puts only the essential information and shows exactly what needs to happen his uh, scale his perspective his action um everything is right there like this is the this is kirby at his finest he knows exactly how to show us what is going on and a lot happens in these eight panels that are fairly small and stan packs it with dialogue but we're still able to see everything yeah and every panel of of these eight panels is a different angle and different perspective from a different like from a different distance all that kind of stuff and that just makes it more interesting yeah um there is wally wood put out a 
he had a he had a little poster that he'd put up that had something like here are essential comic book panel layouts that always work or something like that and they're basically all of the ones that you see in that plus a plus a bunch more they they knew what they were doing back in the mm-hmm. golden age most of them knew what they were doing some of them didn't know as much but jackie did so here's another one beat by water gun this was one <laughs> yeah. uh, um i was gonna think oh and vacuum cleaner yeah oh, those are cleaner, those yes. are a couple yep. more right. that i was like the, there's gonna be like he's gonna be swept away by water or he's gonna be sucked up by a vacuum cleaner and both of those things happen in this yeah. issue here. I, I didn't expect the water gun but i did expect like swept away by water and then again this one has it's issue number two with a scooby-doo twist the the jeweler at the beginning happens to also be the protector that's extorting people this is another there is one trope here that i did expect which is using ants to spell out words <laughs> yeah i think that only happens once though in this, in the, this book. i think it only happens once on panel but there's reference to other ones where he like radios the police and the police are like we got the message from your ants or something like that okay yeah that happens maybe two more times I still don't understand how the disintegrating gun worked. There's a puff of smoke, and he steals some gems under the under the guise of the smoke, and, under the cover of the smoke, and then he drops some sand in their place. Like that, right, how does that explain? So how, does like, the disintegrator ray? Like, does it act as a vacuum and suck up the jewels? No, no. Or? It says he just grabs them. He just grabs them. There's okay. like a puff of smoke, and then he grabs them while nobody's looking, kind of thing. But that doesn't explain. Like, that's, there's a lot of sand there. There's also a lot of jewels to and, just kind of swipe. Yeah, and, like, half of the display case is missing. So I don't really understand that explanation of the uh, disintegrator ray. <laughs> and we don't have to. No. Tales to Astonish, number 38, Betrayed by Ants. This was another trope I knew we were going to see. Eventually, the ants would turn on Hank Pym. Um, this one, ex-government scientist... Egghead, and does he have an actual? Uh, does do they give him a real name, or is he just Egghead? I can't remember. But he's Egghead is hired by the mob to get rid of Ant Man. He's disillusioned with the government and his job, so he's out to make some cash. And and this is a real kind of Batman, nineteen sixty six style villain. In fact, I think there is there a is Batman a, villain a, called Egghead. Uh, isn't there? Eggman? Egghead? Something like that. Yeah, there is. Especially from the, the, the 60s TV series, there definitely was. Which would have come out after this book came out. So oh, this Eggman God. is first. But this is also the issue where we see the fly paper trap that I was going to say we were going to see. And uh, the, the funniest thing here that I think is really hilarious is that on page two of this issue... The, at the t- the first panel, the mob is really afraid of Ant-Man. Like, they all don't want anything to do with them. The dialogue is, I tell you, if we don't get rid of Ant-Man soon, we'll starve to death. We haven't dared pull a robbery in weeks. we got to find a way to stop Ant-Man to make this sa- this town safe for crime. Like, they really <laughs> play up how awesome Ant-Man is, yep. and he's really not that awesome. Well, he stops, like, all of the crime. And I guess he's the only superhero, really. No, no, I guess... No, Spider-Man well, and, and Thor and all of them are Yeah, they're now. all around by now. Yep. But they haven't banded together to form the Avengers yet. Right. That would be the big thing that would put him into obscurity. <laughs> <laughs> right. So in this issue, we also see another example of the inconsistency about his um, his strength proportionate to his size. He says he has the strength of a, quote, normal man, yet he's swinging a full person fully above his head. Yes, I wouldn't be able to do that no. at full size. I don't even know that, uh, again, <laughs> like Batman, Captain, well, Captain America might be able to because he has super strength, but Batman, like the peak of 
human physicality. I don't know that Batman could do that. Oh, Batman can do anything. Oh, yeah, right. Given enough time and, and uh, advance warning, Batman could do anything. <laughs> Egghead is sort of the very first Ant-Man villain. These other guys that we've seen before this are uh, just random communist spies or whatever, but um, Eggman comes back a few times in this collection and, and ha- goes on to have it, his own kind of villain career throughout the history. So we could call him kind of Ant-Man's first villain, kind of the Joker oh, yeah. to, to Batman. Right, just not as crazy. Not as uh, interesting. Yeah. Egghead does fight Ant-Man quite a bit, most regularly, but he also does sometimes go and fight other people like Iron Man or whatever. Oh, okay. I haven't come across those issues yet. Oh, that's a lot later. Mostly he's mostly he's an Ant-Man villain. Which means we don't see him very much because Ant-Man doesn't have his own series very often. <laughs> okay, following on the theme of uh, 60s tropes, Everything gets their uh, their abilities through radiation. So we have in issue 39, we have a beetle that has become intelligent by radiation. It's titled The Vengeance of the Scarlet Beetle. And he decides that he wants to sort of take over all of the insects, rule the insects, and then through that take over the world. And once he meets Ant-Man, he realizes he could become giant and take over the world by being a giant beetle. This was a pretty ridiculous issue. Very. I mean, they're all kind of ridiculous in their own way, but this one was just kind of more over the top, especially because of the... Not only is he just a giant beetle, but he gains some sort of intelligence and can talk in English and has evil machinations. Yep. All things that I think wouldn't happen if you just were affected by radiation, but <laughs> I don't know. No cancer. No, yeah. The other thing about this one is that um, all of the, like the whole insect kingdom, um, he seems to be able to control all of them. Ants, grasshoppers, moths, beetles, yeah. whatever, everything. Because I mean, you know, a, well, actually, sorry, he wasn't able to speak English. He was, he gained telepathic abilities. Oh, and that right. was translated through the helmet, right. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but still being able to, like, he just was that charismatic as a beetle that he could send signals to all of the different insects and have them obey him. At the end of this one, the police are disappointed that Ant-Man didn't show up to take care of this one. So he did everything behind the scenes. Uh, I thought that was an interesting touch. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to put that, but but they did put it in the story. One thing that was very odd is that in the last issue, Egghead tries to trick the ants into rebelling against Ant-Man as their leader. And Ant-Man goes, oh, well, they don't view me as a leader, but as a friend. And, um, you know, we work together and we help each other out kind of thing. They're not motivated by greed, etc. Right. And then in this issue, the beetle tries to gain the popularity with the other insects by using the motivation of greed and power and all that kind of stuff, and they go with him. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the red ants. The black oh, ants yeah. Oh, yeah, aren't right. like that. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and then here, Ant-Man is also described as the ant's leader and not a partner or a friend. So they just kind of forgot what happened last issue. Issue number 40 is called The Day Ant-Man Failed. And in this one, um, in order to stop a a criminal, Ant-Man fakes appendicitis to take (laughs) him out of the picture and then um, sneaks around and taps the bad guy on the back saying, I was just kidding, you're caught, and punches him in the face, and there you go. 
that's kind of the whole thing. The bad guy in this one's called the hijacker. And um, he is hijacking arm armored cars in order to get the jewels from them. Um, another Scooby-Doo-esque yep. trope. This is Scooby... Well, well, the whole ending. Well, yeah. But, but I mean, the, uh, if the very first panel we see... Um, Henry Pym creating a new type of super gas mask for the army. And wouldn't you know it, it's the thing that helps him stop the guy in the end. <laughs> yeah. But this one has the same sort of Scooby-Doo ending that I was mentioning oh, before, yeah. where the guy at the beginning is revealed to be the villain um, overall. So that's the third time that that's happened in this book. Also, art by Jack Kirby. There are some great panels here where Ant-Man is inside the engine of a car. And just, again, the different perspective, the angles that they use, that he uses, just make it really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, he's so good. I think I prefer early Jack Kirby to later Jack Kirby. I really like this era of his work um, before he became so stylized and angular. Like, that's definitely, you know, his definitive style is when he was doing, like, New Gods and that kind of stuff with mm -hmm. DC. But I really like the, the early 60s Jack Kirby. I think it's fantastic. And does it say who he's inked by at this point right here? Uh, I think so. Brodsky. Oh, this one's inked by Saul Brodsky. Wow. he uh, You don't see that his name on there as an inker very much. Issue number 41, Prisoner of the Slave World, is quite a ridiculous tale. This is one of those ones that you were mentioning where it's like aliens just sort of show up and do something and then they run away kind of thing. Yes. We have Ant-Man as a scientist who is captured by the window washer. He's a guy who poses a window washer to uh, get close to scientists, and then he paralyzes them, and <laughs> the aliens come and pick them up and take them to their alternate dimension. You know that old joke that um, yeah, it was made into an episode of Animaniacs where everyone's scared of the viper. The viper is oh, yeah, coming. Right. <laughs> and then they pull back the curtain. The, Hi, I'm the, the viper. I'm the here to viper. wipe the windows. Yeah. <laughs> Um, sorry, uh, the aliens don't come to pick them up. They have this special helmet that teleports them to another dimension. But they have this technology to uh, create um, a dimension traveling item, but they cannot make an electro death ray without the help of <laughs> Earth scientists. Right. And I just wonder, why and how did they choose Earth? <laughs> how did they know that Earth scientists would be the ones that would be able to help them create their electro death ray? I guess they sent scouts out to every planet to see which was the most advanced. Right. Maybe Earth Earth was. Yep. Good thing they didn't land in Africa or something. Ant-Man finds some local alien insect type things and manages to communicate with them. And they're like, oh, sure, we'll help you out. Yeah. The, the whole thing is, um, the, what's the bad guy's name? Kula or Kula. 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 And Kula is actually a dictator. It's an. It's also an analogy of of communism because Kula is a dictator on his planet. He's keeping his entire planet enslaved. And because at the end, Ant-Man overthrows him, he liberates the entire planet. Yeah. And as, as soon as uh, Kula is sort of taking care of the resistance forces burst through the gate and take over pretty easily. Yeah. I find it interesting that Ant-Man doesn't wear his costume at this point. He keeps it. It's, it's miniaturized, <laughs> yeah. and he keeps it in a handkerchief in his pocket. Yeah, he just has it folded up there. It's so funny. So then like, he, sort of has, he like, has unstable molecules, right. so why isn't he wearing the outfit? Well, exactly. He mentions in this issue that he's wearing unstable molecule clothing so that when he shrinks, it will shrink with him. Yeah. 
yet then he has to take it off and put on his Ant-Man his costume. His tiny, tiny, tiny <laughs> Ant-Man costume. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and like if it's in his pocket, he'd have to take it out and place it down on the ground first. That's right. So it doesn't <laughs> shrink even smaller. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. This is what I mean by, you know, Ant-Man's just fun. Yeah, it, it is. It really doesn't have to make sense. No. And I, I was surprised that it took this long to get aliens into the book because um, that's something that Stan leans on very heavily in like aliens pop up all the time and in the first few years of marvel history there have got to be like 50 different alien races mm-hmm. introduced in the second issue of fantastic four is right. the scrolls right in the second issue of the hulk is the toad men from outer space but we had to wait how many issues this is one two three four five six seven issues into the into this book or so yeah uh, before we got aliens and journeys into mystery first appearance of thor he's fighting saturnians oh yeah the stone men from saturn yeah, yeah. that's right the fir- very first issue who by the way are the uh are the race that brought us korg who just made an appearance in uh, ragnarok. The ragnarok yeah yeah he is a character from uh from the world war hulk uh miniseries right but yeah he's in thor ragnarok as well nice yeah i'm glad they pull out those kind of obscure characters this was also the first issue that Kirby does not draw. It's art with by Don Heck and definitely has a different style. He's not as um, solid. He, he has a much looser kind of feel to his art. But moving on, issue number 42, The Voice of Doom. And uh, here we meet a guy named Jason Craig. Uh, he gets amazing powers after being bitten by a radioactive microphone. No, I mean, sorry, <laughs> radioactive waves travel through the microphone and hit him in the nose. Uh, and he gets the power of persuasion, and he uses that to sell dog food and to to do a whole bunch of things. But then he realizes he can control everyone, including Ant Man. He gets, yeah. The whole his whole purpose is he's just jealous of Ant Man's popularity and how much they like him. So he wants to kind of get rid of that. It's it's one of those like if I'm going to be the best, I have to beat the best, and the best is Ant Man, <laughs> not the Fantastic Four, no. not Spider Man, no. Definitely not Thor. Oh, bad guy? Ant-Man. <laughs> I'd like to point out that this one in particular shows a lack of understanding of science. First of all, they describe the radiation that affects him as being ionized atoms, which is part possible, but that would be alpha radiation. And alpha radiation is like one of the weakest ones. And uh, it's like a one of the weakest types of radiations, and it can be blocked easily um, by like a sheet of paper. If that were the type of radiation being let off by whatever science lab down the road, it would (laughs) not have reached them. Also, signals don't get amplified coming out of the microphone. That's right. They go through the microphone to the amplifier and then out the speakers. So then it should be coming out of the speakers that it would be amplified if it were going to be amplified. But again, as a particle, it wouldn't be amplified because it would be amplifying like incoming well but but it but it be it doesn't amplify particles it amplifies electromagnetic waves right oh yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> well i just i don't even understand the science behind covering the microphone he's defeated the, the um jason craig by covering the um the microphone with microbes of laryngitis right that infect him and cause him to not be able to speak which that part kind of makes sense but then Craig doesn't even really bother trying to take an, uh, to control anybody again because he's like, even if I get past this laryngitis, I doubt my voice is going to be the same again. <laughs> it's like, well... You don't know that. You don't know that. 
if you're fully healed, then you should be like the same as before. So, <laughs> but I guess laryngitis counteracts radioactivity. Oh yeah, right. Alpha radioactivity because right. it's so weak. Yes. <laughs> Um, I do think, though, that this is kind of uh, a frightening story in the sense that Ant-Man is shrunk, and he has to stay shrunk, otherwise he will follow, he'll, uh, is that true that if he stays small, he doesn't get affected by the the, vo- the guy's voice? No, it was the helmet. Yeah, it was the helmet, but... He stayed small in order to yeah. escape the people of the city, so yeah. he's being chased by an entire city of giants right to him yes who are all looking for him and that's yeah. actually kind of kind of frightening yeah if he were to regain his proper size then he'd be much easier to spot but they don't know who he is so he could have just taken off his costume oh but then he would be under the under the spell yes right so he has to keep his helmet on which means he's going to stick out quite a bit which so he stays small why can't he wear his helmet when he's full size he could but then he'd be just obvious oh obvious oh yeah yeah, yeah. so it's a lose-lose situation right but then they start putting magnets on the ends of sticks so they can pick him up by his helmet. <laughs> That's actually kind of smart. Yeah. Issue 43 is titled The Mad Master of Time, where we have another jilted professor. He's being fired for being too old. The company has a policy that anybody who is over 65 gets terminated or, quote, discharged. He tries to get another job, but nobody will hire somebody of his age. And he doesn't want to seem like a failure to his uh, nephew who is coming to visit, or sorry, his grandson who is coming to visit. Therefore, he invents an aging ray with the intention of aging the people who fired him so that they'd all have to be fired. This is a common thing. A scientist does, in this book, this is a common thing. Um, A scientist gets angry and therefore... Um, that spurs on his most incredible amount of creativity and genius ever. Because inventing a, a sh- uh, an aging ray in like lickety split. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, just going to do it. Yeah. I'm so angry. I'm going to do this impossible thing. And, it's, and he does it. So good. Um, this is a classic Twilight Zone kind of story. Because in the end, he zaps an entire street of, of people and turns them all old. And his grandson happens to be one of those people. The one person that he was trying to impress. That's the human psyche kind of story that that we see in all of these really er early pre-superhero Marvel comics. And in fact, this probably is a story from back then. Because if you take Ant-Man out of the story, the story still continues. Ant-Man is pretty useless and pointless and doesn't do anything in this story. He meets up with the bad guy, but he doesn't do anything to stop him. Yeah, he becomes aged quite quickly, and then he's like, oh, I'm old and feeble and can't move very easily. But then the bad guy undoes himself. Right. The only thing that maybe they might have changed is he goes to reverse the, the effect of the ray so that his grandson would be young again. And when he does that, he slips and drops it off the top of a building. And if it were more of a um, suspense, Twilight Zone-ish type ending, it would have broken. And then his grandson would be stuck that way. Right. Yeah, yeah. But in this one, um, Ant-Man, again, he has a pile of ants gather underneath to catch this thing. Yeah. And then he turns everybody back. Why he didn't just grow himself and catch it with his own two hands, I don't know. Right. He had to wait for all of the ants to come from everywhere and pile up. I like how there's just a convenient, like, large mass of ants everywhere. (laughs) Well, there are underground. I'm sure there are tons of ants all the time everywhere. They just, we just don't see them all. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, the, it, that's it for the Don Heck issues, because this next one, Jack Kirby Returns. Oh, he Don Heck inks. Don Heck is the inker. Yeah, that's right. And it's a very different feel with Don Heck inking uh, than the previous issues, um, because it's just a, it's much more lighter, a little sketchier. Um, he puts in, I think, a lot more just kind of lines instead of thicker shadows and that kind of thing. But this issue, number 44, is called The Creature from Cosmos. And this is the very first appearance of of uh, the Wasp, of Jan Van Dyne. And in this one, uh, Jan Van Dyne's father is a scientist. He's trying to make contact with life in outer space. Little does he know that they made contact like a few issues ago, but that's not important <laughs> here. And then he unwittingly unleashes this creature from some part of the, the, the universe that comes to Earth and starts raging. And, uh, and he gets killed in the process. And because of that, Jan has to team up with Henry and he gives her powers. He lets her, he let, she lets him experiment on him and give her wings and <laughs> just some weird things here. This, this was a, this was a fun issue. It is nice to see Wasp in here, but it's, it's, Again, one of the more ridiculous issues. Plus, I think it's one of the earliest times we can say that Marvel retconned an origin story. Oh, yeah. Now, it's interesting because it is a reimagining of Ant-Man's origin that mostly works with the original version. The biggest thing is that they've changed his motivation. Yeah. We also get a flashback. We find out that he was married to Maria and that Maria was killed as part of a Soviet plot. Um, Those darn communists. That's right. So he made his growth shrinking formula in order to become a superhero and gain vengeance against the people who uh, killed his wife. As opposed to in the first issue where he... He was just shunned by the scientific community. Well, no, that that still happens in this one, it seems like. But um, his motivation was to, like, give foreign aid and basically, you know, help people... Oh, I, I guess you can't consider shrinking an army down for easy transportation to necessarily be helping people. But depends on what people you're helping. <laughs> well, exactly, right, <laughs> right. But the the idea was, oh, I'm just going to do this. This is going to be great for humanity. Whereas in, now it's out of now, revenge. Yeah, now it's like, oh, I need to become a superhero to get these people. Yeah, I don't know. Yet he makes himself shrink. <laughs> I will defeat them all by becoming tiny. Yep. The interesting thing is, um, while Maria dies here in the USSR. She did have a daughter. And I don't know exactly the timeline on this. Um, she had a daughter named Nadia, um, who, uh, who is the present day, well, one of the present day wasps. So Jan Van Dyne is one of the wasps. Yeah. Still. And Nadia Pym is another wasp, the young one. Um, she was raised similarly to Black Widow, Red Room Training. And, oh, yeah. Uh, okay like former KGB type stuff. She mentions um, one of her earliest memories being with a guy with a red star on his shoulder who Win- would be Winter, Winter Soldier. Soldier. Yeah. Yep. And she is the comic version of the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Hope Van Dyne, who is the wasp in the movie. Okay. Because Nadia is Russian for hope. Oh. Um, yeah. So that was, and, and she appeared just after the Ant-Man movie came out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so, the, so she was created because of the movie. Oh yeah, but isn't there a Hope Van Dyne in 
the in the in Marvel Comics already? Not that I know of. Who was Stinger from? Oh, sorry, M- M2? right. Sorry, yeah. Hope him. Hope is also the name of Jan and Hank's daughter in many alternate futures. Okay, yeah. So Stinger from uh, from MZ two and also the Young Avengers, I think. Okay, yeah. But this is Nadia, and she has met um, and bonded with Janet. Janet's kind of being like the mother that she never had as as the stepmother. This is modern day. That modern day stuff, yeah. yeah. The modern day stuff. stuff. Yeah. And so I wouldn't be surprised if she actually changed her name to honor uh, the Wasp at some point, similar to how uh, Rachel Summers changed her name to Rachel Gray. Or Nick Fury Jr. just went by Nick Fury. Right. And adopted an eye patch. Right. (laughs) To be just like his dad. Just like his dad. Yeah. So in this is one of the first issues that is double size, not quite double size. I mean, it's 18 pages instead of 13 pages. So there's only one additional story at the end of this issue that that is not reprinted in this book. And also, this is the first issue where H.E. Huntley is doing the script. And H.E. Huntley is a pseudonym for Ernie Hart, who did a lot of um, like funny animal kind of stories and that kind of thing. Worked on many different comics in the fifties and sixties and that kind of, and I maybe even the forties, like pre and post World War Two. Mm. But he is so incredibly wordy. Yes, this issue has so many words in it, and all of the he does the scripts for I think um, the next three issues as well, and they are all so wordy. If you take a look at page one forty, most of the panels. The speech bubble's like half the panel. And a lot of it is not necessary. They could be trimmed down. But this was a common thing when Stan... Because the way it worked is Stan would have his plot and he would hand the plot over to the artist, let's say Jack Kirby, and Jack Kirby would take that and lay the plot out into a an 18-page story. And then he would hand it over to the scripter who would look at his work and form the words and the, to go along with what he sees on the page. Mm-hmm. And so if this guy's job is just scripting, then of course he's going to put a bunch of word bubbles in there. Like why would he not put word bubbles um, if he's being paid to, to do that? Right. I don't know. Maybe he gets paid by the word bubble. <laughs> in this one, they defeat... The, the creature from Cosmos by who is made up of formic acid mostly by coming up with a chemical reaction that will make him dissipate and they administer it by shotgun <laughs> yet they have the ants hold the shotgun while Ant-Man in miniature size pulls the trigger whereas he could have just gone back to regular size because he's on a roof where no one's going to see him and just fired the shotgun himself and probably have had a better aim and everything like that well, I don't know. How good is an ant's aim? Well, I think the thing, the, the whole too many cooks in the kitchen could be applied to hundreds of ants holding one shotgun. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, they don't just form a giant hand uh, like you see in cartoons. Yeah. It's, not, it's not like Green Lantern here. <laughs> um, there's a reference in, in Ant-Man's origin, his new origin, where he says, what's the thing that my wife used to say? Go to the ants, thou sluggard. 
<laughs> and yeah. that's actually taken from Proverbs in the Bible. Okay. It's from Proverbs 6, 6 to 8, and it says, uh, go to the ant, singular. Go to the ant, you sluggard, meaning a lazy person. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in the summer and gathers its food at harvest. Basically, it's a call to not be lazy and to be proactive in preparing and saving for the future. That doesn't exactly apply here. It's no. kind of taken out of context. Well, the first, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and a lot of the Bible often is. But if you just look at the first part of that verse, go to the ant, you know, and consider its ways and be wise. And it's like, oh, well, I should just get off my lazy butt and do whatever an ant does. <laughs> Which means build a cybernetic helmet that controls ants. And, you know, and be a superhero. Yeah, and be a superhero. Get off your lazy ants, butt. Ants, be, ants are so great the because they have, no, they have no master. So I'll become their master. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. The interesting thing about having the tiny cells that create the wings and the antenna from, uh, for, for the wasp is that artists often get mixed up. And so in this issue, they actually draw the wasp's antenna before she shrinks. And in the next issue, they draw wings on full-size Janet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's kind of confusing because when you drop the panel of the per- the perspective of the panel to sort of match what size they're supposed to be, you kind of forget when she's supposed to have wings or not or whatever. So I wonder if that's the case where Jan was actually small and had wings, but then the um, but then the, whoever was writing the script wrote something to reference her being full size. Right, maybe. That that could be. We'll have to see. Yeah. Speaking of, issue 45 is the return of Egghead in The Terrible Traps of Egghead. And here is one more of your tropes. Um, Egghead, <laughs> Egghead, who got away last time, um, we saw him sort of mentally unstable. He hears some common thugs talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp. He becomes very interested and decides it's time for him to get his revenge. In order to do that, he grows a beard and pretends to be a professor of zoology or something like that. Specializing in wasps. Specializing in wasps. And his plan is not to attract the attention of and fight the wasp, but to just capture her as bait for Ant-Man. And again, this goes back to uh, the stereotype of, um, of women and their role in superheroing at this time. But this one's a little ridiculous because out of all of the things, like we've never heard um, Jan van dyne express any sort of interest in actual wasps she only has interests in men right fashion right jewelry yeah. and later on in this book uh, the magician lures her away because of a fashion show that's inspired by her that's right that's an effective way to gain her attention not yeah. putting on a presentation about wasps in fact anytime um henry starts to talk about anything science related she just sort of blows him off and goes, how boring. Yeah, yeah. I wish you were more manly and adventurous or something. Yeah. Yet she goes to this wasp um, show <laughs> yeah. st- presentation. Um, she's captured, um, which uh, draws in Ant-Man. And as they are fighting Egghead, he reveals an ant eater. We knew what was going to happen yeah. at some point, folks. And uh, they are able to do away with this ant eater and stop the Egghead even with his beard. And again, he ends with a very sort of uh, trope villain speech. I'll be back next time, and I'll get you next time. This Is this the first returning villain? This is the first returning villain. Yep, there we go. Cementing his place in Ant-Man history. Yep. 
In this next issue, number 46, when Cyclops walks the Earth, Jan and, and uh, Henry and Jan go up against the X-Men. No, wait a minute. This is a different <laughs> Cyclops. This is an actual mythical Cyclops, a one-eyed monster. Henry and Jan go on vacation in Greece, but then are warned by locals about a huge monster that's stealing boats and kidnapping sailors. Uh, and then they find out that eventually it's actually a robot. And oh wait, and then they find out it's actually aliens. So this is aliens number two? This is aliens number two doing the same thing, running away from Earth when they find out how powerful humans can actually be. Your classic alien setup. On page 166, who was it that scripted this? I think this is a Huntley episode. Huntley. It is. Um, or, or maybe it's the letterer that did this, S. Rosen. Um, on page 166, the wasp is referred to as Janice. Oh, yeah, I noticed that. That's right. Yeah, that. I don't know if that's the person who did the script or if that's the person who did the lettering. I'm prob- it probably is the scripter, especially since Huntley is new yeah. to, this, to this book. But I don't know. Yeah. That's kind of like when they call Bruce Banner, Robert Banner. Right. In some of those Fantastic Four issues. Mm-hmm. Or Peter Palmer in <laughs> one of <laughs> the early Palmer. Spider-Man issues. In this one, well, in the last issue, the wasp picks up a needle and uses it at her as her stinger because wasps have stingers. In this issue, she pulls it out again. But where does she keep it? In her... <laughs> like Wonder Woman down the back of her dress. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it just sort of appears. She doesn't have it, and all of a sudden she's she does. So that's kind of weird. Maybe it's really tiny, and she pours some enlarging formula <laughs> on it, and it grows bigger. It's smaller than ant size. So yeah, and then they uh, they do away with this robot by taking control of it. It works on electro frequencies the same as ants, so he tunes it to the frequency of his helmet. And commands it to walk into the water until it's covered up and it rusts and can't move anymore. And I would love to see a story where they revisit this. Like, I don't know, Namor finds it underwater and brings it back to life and now it's under his control or something. Yeah, or or even just um, like some Atlantis-seeking archaeologist or something find it and, uh, and turn it back on. And it rises out of the sea. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. <clears throat> Number 47 is called... Music to Scream By, featuring Trago, the man with the magic trumpet. Yes. This is a good one. <laughs> it's another um, It's another one with a script by Huntley and art by Don Heck. This is a weird one because it takes place over several time periods. We start off with Ant-Man and Wasp uh, rescuing sort of this old wizardy type person who knows of some ancient magics. And makes reference to this uh, Gazandi who is able to hypnotize and control people. Then, on their way uh, home from this uh, adventure, they decide uh, Ant-Man and Wasp decide to stop off and listen to Trago and his magic trumpets, a jazz uh, combo. And after that performance, Trago actually steals from the uh, from the venue. And they don't stop him. And then a guy kills his uncle ben <laughs> right <laughs> uh and, and then ant-man becomes spider-man <laughs> spider ant-man <laughs> with the size of a spider that's right <laughs> um no he runs away trago runs away to india and actually ends up starving from lack of work but is rescued by dun, 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 gazandi who teaches him the ways of uh hypnotizing people and controlling people with music 
He returns several months, I believe, later. Coincidentally, just after Ant-Man and Wasp pass by a nightclub, um, a jazz club poster, and go, hey, remember that Trago guy? I wonder whatever happened to him. <laughs> he returns, he plays music to hypnotize people and then steal from them, and Ant-Man and Wasp must stop him. There is a very famous issue of Moon Knight. When we get to... Um... When we ever get to that, I think it would be in Moon Knight Epic Collection 3, which isn't out yet. Um, the issue is called Hit It. And in that one, uh, there's a jazz musician who has a, a, a pretty touching story. But Bill Sienkiewicz visually represents music in just an incredible way. Hmm. It's really, really cool. And in this issue of Ant-Man, that is not the case. <laughs> Yeah, and if there's a it's, bunch of sound effects. Like squiggly broken notes. and Yeah, I mean, it, it probably is to say that he's actually not a very good musician, but it's all like the, the, the it's like clang and plink, plink, plink and wham. Like these, these sound effects are not something you would hear from instruments, really. At least not good, not, not, not in the form of music. It's like maybe if you were playing sort of a one-off, not very, not done very well kind of sound, you might get that. But yeah. uh, this, this issue is also the first appearance but also the death of Kor, the first named ant. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's a flying ant, and he's like uh, Ant-Man's best bud. It's like, I'm just going to call Kor, and we'll catch a ride home. Yeah. And then he has to sacrifice himself. Oh, man, out of all the ants yep. to go. Which puts him into a bit of a funk at the end. And at the very end of this, um, the there is a quote which is actually, again, from the Bible. It's John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, than one who lays down his life for his friends. What's that, the third Bible reference in this That is the third Bible book? reference wow. in this book. That's right. Wow. I wonder if Kor was, the, was actually intended to be the ant from uh, the first issue in this volume. The one, uh, all the ants were trying to get him, and there's the one ant that helped him. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I wonder if that was supposed to be that ant, or just... I will, Let's uh, say it was. Yeah, that's right. It was. Yeah. I also wonder about the 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 thought behind naming an ant just to kill them off in the same issue. Well, it's because when you name something, you get attached to it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you get to know it. That's right. It's not just a mindless, faceless uh, ant anymore. It's like that's why we the only stormtrooper we know is Finn. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because he's going to die eventually, and it'll be off. It'll be awful. Opposed to yeah. all those other stormtroopers yeah. that die we don't all feel, the time. We don't feel anything about any of the other stormtroopers. Not at all. Not a single thing. Except for some of them in Clone Wars. Right. Tales to Astonish number 48. The Ant-Man and the Wasp defy the Porcupine. This is Ant-Man's second major villain, I guess. Because he he comes back. But yeah, this is another one that... Scienti- another scientist who... Um, feels like he's too good for what he's doing right he's not like shut down or fired or anything like that in this case he just wants to like he gets sort of a big head about himself yeah and decides i can actually use my knowledge to steal things and i know that there's like stanley was creating a whole ton of characters at this time and a lot of them are animal based especially over in Spider-Man's world with the scorpion and Dr. Octopus mm-hmm. and the vulture. But now we have the porcupine in one of the most ridiculous looking outfits you have ever seen. But I have to say it's a pretty cool outfit. In like it looks stupid. But it has yeah, it does a but lot of does, cool things. It does some really cool stuff. I I don't know where he got the idea for these like little jet flying things because porcupines don't fly. Yeah. But uh <laughs> And it's kind of funny because it's just a bunch of the quills 
fire some sort of um, jets of air that lift him off the ground, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so his different quills are uh, are loaded with different things. So there's like quick drying cement in one, and there's like acetylene torches in another, and stuff like that. The the whole of this issue is basically just a giant chase. He robs a bank at the beginning, and, and Ant Man and Wasp kind of chase him from place to place. After that, there's not much more to it than that. The suit sort of changes hands over years and falls into um, the hands of, I believe it was Hobgoblin, who at the time, um, just a few years ago, was sort of funding a bunch of new villains. And so he sells um, the porcupine or sells the rights to the porcupine name and suit to some other guy um, who fights Spider-Woman when she's pregnant, Okay, uh, is defeated. Is he wearing the same, the same silly costume? It's very similar. But does it look cooler? It looks a little cooler. Okay. But it's still very similar. Um, and so he actually does reform and becomes the partner of and a babysitter for Spider-Woman. <laughs> okay, and in wow. the last issue of Spider-Woman, they do actually share a kiss. And we don't know what's happened to him because then he's like kidnapped right after that. Ah. This brings us to the end of our episode for this week. And as you can tell, we haven't finished our discussion. We've still got some stuff to talk about. But Eric and I went on for three hours talking about Ant-Man. Who would have believed that? But it's just this combination of things that's 1960s, so there's a lot to talk about. There are more issues packed into one because these stories are all, you know, 8 to 12 pages long. So if we spend an equal amount of time talking about one issue as we would any of our other episodes then yeah, this one's going to go on quite a bit longer, and it sure did. So I'm splitting it right down the middle, just before the birth of Giant Man. So tune in next week when we will be able to hear the rest of our conversation talking about Giant Man, Tales to Astonish number 49 to 59. And I'll see you then.